Bibles now and let's open them to Ephesians chapter 6 and we continue once again in our study of Christian warfare and we're looking at the many different pieces of armor uh, that God has provided for our protection against the wiles of the devil and God has given this given us this armor that's very effective in repelling Satan's attacks but it's only effective as long as we're wearing it and as long as we have every piece that's put in the right place. And the reason I think that many Christians do fail is because it's not because there's not a means, and it's not because there is no power, because all of that is provided. God's power is here. But you may remember that we talked a few weeks ago how that God's power is simply not enough. Not only do we need God's power, but we need protection. And even though God has supplied the power, more power than enough necessary to defeat Satan, yet we have to be ready for his attacks. Because it's very simple that a strong fighting man sleeping is vulnerable to the enemy. And so we have to be awake and watch, watchful for this. Well, tonight we come to another uh, piece of the soldier's equipment. And this is really one that we wouldn't think very much about. In fact, we may be tempted to neglect this particular piece of armor because at first we would think, well, this is insignificant. When you get this picture in your mind that Paul had of the Roman soldier and uh, you think about him as the ultimate fighting machine of the ancient world, You think about the weapons that he carries. He has that helmet on his head. Perhaps he has a plume on top of the helmet. And then he has his sword. He has his shield. He has a breastplate that he wears. We don't think very much about his feet. And we probably don't think that the feet are really necessary to care about. And yet Paul thought that this was very important. And important enough that he included it in his analogy. So let's read about it here in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin with verse 10. If you'd stand with me as we read, please. Uh, We'll read verse 10 down through verse number 15. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace." Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We ask you, Lord, to open up your word to us. Help us to better understand, Lord, what it means for us to take the gospel and to have our feet shod with this gospel of the preparation of peace. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to be here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were picking out the different pieces of armor that a soldier would wear, uh, what pieces do you think would be most important? Probably... Most of us would think about the helmet that he wears because obviously you have to protect your head. Your your head is where your brain is and your brain controls all of your functions and, and of course you can't live without that. Or we might say, well, this breastplate, that's a very important part because we have to cover up the vital organs. Heart has to beat the, uh, beat for the, uh, the blood to flow. Our lungs have to be able to draw in air. And so those are very important pieces of armor. And that seems logical to us that those are very, very important. But what happens if you can't even get the soldier to the battlefield because he has sore feet? You can take a strong man 
And you can disable him very quickly if you can hurt him in his feet. I mean, you can't get a soldier to the battlefield if he can't walk, if he has blisters all over his feet, or if he has a broken ankle, he can't get there. Those of you that like to watch ball games, football or whatever, you've probably seen from time to time that maybe even the star quarterback can't play a particular game because he has a sore big toe. The feet are extremely important. And so when Paul says to put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand, we need to stop right there and consider what is it that we stand on? How does a soldier stand? Well, if his feet are not in good shape, he won't stand. He won't even be able to get to the battlefield to get into the battle. And I'm afraid probably that's what's wrong with many Christian people today, is that is they don't have anything that's solid under their feet, and they haven't taken care to keep the feet, so to speak, in good shape. Last month, when uh, Brother Gary and I were in Israel, uh, we learned the value of having your feet in very good shape. Before we left, we got all kinds of advice from the tour guides that said, make sure that you prepare by walking, strengthen yourself by walking. They said, make sure you have a good pair of shoes to wear because we're going to do a lot of walking on this trip. And absolutely we did. And you wouldn't have had a good time on this trip if you wouldn't be able to walk. And so this is what Paul is saying. Make sure that you don't forget to take care of your feet. You stand on your feet. So make sure that they're healthy, and then also make sure that you're standing on solid ground. Now let's look at some things here tonight that tell us why the feet are so important. What's the analogy that he's trying to make? So we're going to begin with the place where we stand, and that is the foundation of our faith. If you're going to stand, I think you need to be very sure about where you stand. Exactly where are you going to put your feet? Because if you're not standing in a sure place, and if you're standing in a slippery place, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to fall. And so every Christian soldier has to be sure of his faith and stand in that faith. Next week, we're going to deal a lot more with faith, but we're going to look tonight for just a few minutes at the foundation of faith. I'm going to elaborate more on it next week, but we do know what the Scripture says about having a sure foundation. A a story that Jesus told, a parable that he gave us that's very familiar to all of us, is when Jesus told about the, the wise man and the foolish man. The foolish man, he said, built his house on the sand, and he said that, when the, when the storms came, when the rains came, and, and uh, the winds blew, that this man's house was not on a solid foundation, and so it fell. And he compared that to the wise man who builds his, fa- his, builds his house on a rock. He has a strong foundation, so that when the storms beat violently against that house, it doesn't move, it stands firm, because it's on a solid foundation. Isaiah record God's word in chapter 28 of Isaiah, and he said, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. He says, A sure foundation, and he that believeth shall not make haste. Peter took that very same scripture, and he applied it to the Messiah. And he told us that Jesus is the sure foundation of our faith. And so our faith in him is what we stand on. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is a rock that cannot be moved. And when our feet stand on him, we will not slip. We're in a sure place. And we can brace ourselves against these wiles of the devil. We balance ourselves out well when we stand upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Now, let me point out just a couple of aspects of a sure foundation that will keep us from slipping. First of all, it is the base 
of operations. Our faith is the very base of our operations. Every army has a command center from which the field maneuvers are carried out. Soldiers don't go into the battlefield and go with a haphazardly and run around trying to find out who they're going to fight next. There is a command center. The base of operations is there, and the command center directs the battle, and that soldier carries out predetermined battle plans. Well, our faith is based upon the work that Jesus Christ did. It's all described in the pages of Scripture, and that is the base of our operations. That's where we get all of our instructions, and that's what we stand on. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 16, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. And if our feet are not firmly planted in that faith, and if our defensive posture is not set, we will be knocked off our feet by the enemy. Now, someone has well said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And unfortunately, folks, when we look at the face of Christianity today, or maybe it'd be better to say if we looked at the feet of Christianity today, we see that there aren't very many people that are standing on anything. Today, we live in a world where preachers have to get up, or at least they think they do. They have to be politically correct. And so they're going to compromise the things that we find in God's Word because if they take too strong of a stand on any issue, people will get angry about it and walk out of the church. Now, there are some people who may think that because I don't preach every single sermon about Christian standards that I'm not, I'm not up here in every service talking about the way that people dress and the places that people go and always speaking about Christian living, that somehow I really don't take a stand on issues. But I want you to be very clear about something. I do think that we need to take a stand on those things. I believe that teenagers and adults ought to be careful about the clothes that they wear. I think that we need to keep ourselves well-groomed. We need to watch how we come into God's house. We ought to be careful about the places that we go and so that we don't weaken our godly resolve because when we're in the wrong places doing the wrong things, we're not standing for the Word of God and we will fall. Now, where I disagree with other people is how did you get that point across? Because there are many folks that want to preach on Christian living as if uh, the things that you do will actually produce an inward holiness in you. Well, when you do that, you're not really standing on anything. All you're doing is putting up a facade. And so teenagers and adults that put on a false front and they substitute righteousness and sanctification for an act that pleases their pastor rather than what is pleasing to God, then they're not actually standing. We need holiness, but we need an inward holiness that works itself outward and not the other way around. And so we have to stand on something. So I definitely believe we need to stand on these different things that we teach. The base of operations is the tried and true doctrines of the Word of God. Now, don't think that the devil doesn't want me to compromise in order that we could just put numbers on the board and fill up the church with people. I know very well tonight that we could have more members sitting in Berean Baptist Church if I were to compromise or if this church were to compromise on the issue of our baptism. I know people that left here that wouldn't keep attending church because when they wanted to become members, I told them that in order to be a member here, you must have a proper administrator, a proper authority for your baptism. You need to have a baptism from, uh, from, from the church here, from the Baptist church under that authority. And if you don't have that, you have a wrong authority. And people say, well, we don't like that. We're not going to come back because we don't think that that's necessary. We could have more people if we were to compromise that issue. We would have more people if I were to announce on a Sunday morning that everyone who comes to church, regardless of your affiliation, 
uh, your religious affiliation. Bring all your friends. Bring everything, anybody that you want to. And we're going to have a communion service. And we're going to let everybody participate in that. But because we practice closed communion, there are people who won't come to this church. I had a lady that went out one morning and she said to me, well, I see that you're having communion tonight. It was in the bulletin. She said, you're having communion tonight, so I'll be back tonight to take communion. And I said, well, well, ma'am, really, that's for the members of the church. And she looked at me and she said, you mean you have to be a member of the church to take communion? And I said, yes, that's what we believe and that's what she teach, what we teach. And she said, well, I'm never coming back to this church again. Now, here was a lady who thought that her idea of what we should do and who can't come and who can come to the Lord's table, that it really doesn't matter whether you obey the Lord and whether you're a part of His church and whether you you, you really listen to this and you accept the fact that God wants you to be a part of the church, the institution that Christ loved and He founded. Her idea is you don't need to do that. Well, that's not the Bible's idea, though. You can't come and commune with Jesus Christ and neglect the commands that He's given. So, folks, there is a base of operations, and we need to stick to that base, stick to God's Word. We don't have the authority to compromise it or to countermand any of the captain's instructions. But today, the base of operations is no longer what God says. Our base is whatever fills up seats. And so you have things like the purpose-driven church, and they're interested and they care about how they can make the world more comfortable with the things that we do in church. Here's one thing you'll find out. The church will never like, or excuse me, the world will never like God's music. The world is never going to like the doctrinal truths that we teach. And that's because the natural man hates the things of God. And so what he looks for are things that look like him, not things that look like God. And that's the problem with this whole purpose-driven church model is that They're trying to make the church look like man rather than look like God so that people be attracted to it. I like what one person wrote in his book or the name of the book and I I, uh, imagine that he didn't sell nearly as many copies of it as Rick Warren has. But his title was Who is Driving the Purpose Driven Church? And I think that we know the answer to that. So the base of operations on which we stand is the Holy Writ. We don't change it. We don't compromise it. We keep on preaching. And I promise you folks that if I were to change our historical Baptist doctrine and I were to put into its place Methodist doctrine that many of the fundamental Baptist churches are practicing today, we would have no trouble having all the fellowship that we need. But we wouldn't be standing on something. We wouldn't be standing on the Word of God. And that's why I believe in those old historic Baptist principles that we teach and things that our forefathers believe. I don't think we ought to change those things because they come from the Word of God. So let's stand on that. So whenever we decide that we're going to compromise any part of God's Word, we're no longer standing in a sure place. Our feet aren't on solid ground. We're going to find ourselves slipping, and eventually we'll fall. But that's not all. The foundation is our base of operations, but it's also the basic of obedience. If we go back to the Old Testament and and we see what God told Joshua... Uh, the foundation for every battle that he fought and every victory that he won was God's word. You remember the very first basic instruction that God gave Joshua? He said, Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it from the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. 
Now, Joshua didn't have the Old Testament or the completed Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament like we have today. All that he had to depend on were five books of the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. But in those five books, Joshua found everything that he needed to know, all the instructions that he needed to worship God and to win his battles and win his victories. It is that he be obedient to everything that God said in that law. God said, Joshua, don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left. You stay right down the middle and stay on that straight and narrow path. And isn't that just a basic thing to do? I mean, folks, we have the Word of God that is the infallible, inspired Word. What makes us think that we're going to find something better on the right hand or the left? Where are we going to find some better instructions out here somewhere else than what we find in God's Word when God's Word is infallible? And so we stay right down the middle of this, and we'll have success. We will stand on something. You know, have you ever been driving down the highway, and you see a sign on the side of the road that says, Soft Shoulder? You see those signs? You ever watch somebody, or watch these guys as they build the road? Now, Brother Jim back there works for the county, and they do a lot of road building. But if you watch them build roads, what they do is they come in there, and they take excavators, and they dig out the earth, and then they start they get down to solid ground, and then they come back in, and they put in dirt and gravel, and they start to compact that to a density that's greater than the original soil. Then they come along, and they start pouring a concrete base reinforced with steel rods. Then they put asphalt on top of that. Then the idea is that if you put your car on that roadway and you stay on the roadway, it'll support your car. You have plenty of, a, plenty of a, a foundation there to drive on, and you don't have to worry about whether you're going to sink in the middle of the roadway. But if you decide that you're going to drive off the side of the road, over on the shoulder, that's when they have a sign there that says, be careful here, you're over here in this area now, and if you're not careful, you're going to get stuck. Watch out. Well, that seems pretty simple, doesn't it? I mean, stay on the road, and everything's going to be fine. But there are Christians that don't like the road. They want to drive off on the shoulder, and they still think that things are going to be fine. And so they ignore the instructions and the warnings, and they wander off to the right hand or to the left, and then when something happens to them, they act this way. What in the world happened? What is God doing to me? And they start to blame God for what they do wrong. Well, you ignored the road signs, dummy. You're supposed to stay in the middle of the road. I mean, here's what the Scripture says. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So the very basic of obedience is simply do what you're told to do. Stay in the Word. And God says when you do that, you'll prosper. That's how you win battles. That's how you're successful. Don't wander right hand or left. Stay right there, right down the middle of God's Word. Now, let's go on to another area here. First, there's the foundation of faith, and then we have the preparation of the feet. The preparation of the feet. Now, now here's where argument comes in as to about what Paul actually mean in the, means in these verses. When we read these words here, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, I don't know about you, but my mind is drawn immediately to something that was said in the book of Isaiah. Paul quoted Isaiah on this very issue, and uh, we find it in Isaiah 52, verse number 7, and, Isaiah, and Paul loosely quoted it in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. 
But the scripture says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now some people argue that this verse, this thought, is not what Paul had in mind when he was dealing with warfare. And they say the reason that he didn't is because we don't find anything defensive in that verse. It's not about defending ourselves about anything. And so they say, that can't be Paul's meaning here. There's no defense involved in it. No, I don't know. Maybe that's a pretty good argument. But how could our minds not be drawn to that particular scripture? When you think about this, how could we not think about that? I mean, are we going to go off balance by thinking that a Christian soldier is not only to be a defensive person but he's also to go on the offense? Uh, would it be too far out of the way to think that a soldier also wants to, to, to advance and not just hold territory or, or keep the ground that he's standing on, that he wants to take some more territory? I think that's what Paul means. And, and I think here that we, first of all, that we need to have readiness for an invasion. And here is the plain, simple truth of the matter. If we are not moving forward, then very soon we're going to find ourselves moving backwards. We have an example right here in our church. We have some of our folks that are getting older, and one by one, this will happen. These folks will die, and we're going to lose some of our soldiers. That's already happened in the past few weeks. If we are not replacing soldiers, then it's not going to be very long till we don't have enough to hold the fort. You see, the world keeps adding people all the time. Every day, there are people that are born into the world. And if you didn't know this, let me clue you in on a little secret. They aren't born saved. You, you don't get born, you're not born saved. These are people that come into the world that need to be born again. And if we're not adding more people, and if we're not constantly winning more people to the Lord, and if we're not continually adding soldiers, then even though we may stand right here, we're actually losing ground. I mean, we're, we're, the world's becoming saturated with more people and Christians become fewer and fewer. So we can die even though we're doing a pretty good job of standing. You see, it's great to have doctrine. Wonderful that we have doctrine. It's tremendous that we're uncompromising in doctrine. But if that doesn't translate into the future obedience of following the commission of Christ, then we are going to die right here with our doctrine intact. So what do you do? You know, why, why do you think that I'm preaching about the church of Ephesus tonight instead of to the church of Ephesus? You know, there's an answer to that. Turn your Bibles just a few pages back to the book of Revelation. We're going to read about this, and you'll find out why we're not preaching to the church of Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 is where we went to look, and this is Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus, the very same church that Paul writes this letter to. And he says in Revelation chapter 2, in verse number 1, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now, the angel there, that means the pastor of that church. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars." and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Now, you know what verses 2 and 3 there tell me? They tell me that this church had great doctrine. There were people who came into this church, and they, were, they came in with false doctrine, 
And these people knew enough about God's word. They were strong enough to defend themselves against it. And they stood on the word of God. And they pointed out who those first uh, false apostles were. If you remember, Paul warned the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts that this would happen. He said, beware of this because grievous wolves will enter in, not sparing the flock. He said, there's going to come some people into your church and some will even arise from within the congregation and they'll teach perverse things and they'll try to draw people after them. Now, evidently, here was a church that knew how to defend themselves against that and they did a good job of that because Jesus says, you tried them. You found out they're false teachers. You have good doctrine. You've held the faith. But he didn't stop there. He goes on and we have verse number four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove the candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Have you ever thought, what does Jesus mean when he says, do the first works? He says, repent, and do the first works. I want you to listen to Albert Barnes' comment on this. He says, let them read the Bible as they did then. Let them pray as they did then. Let them go forth in the duties of active benevolence as they did then. Let them engage in teaching at Sunday school as they did then. Let them relieve the distressed, instruct the ignorant, raise up the fallen as they did then. Let them open their heart, their purse, and their hand to bless a dying world. As it was in this way that they manifested their love then, so it would be better suited than all other things to rekindle the flame of love when it's almost extinguished. That comment is heavily geared towards reaching other people. He says, rekindle the love for people. And he says, do something to bless a dying world. What better thing could we do to bless a dying world than to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ? In fact, we cannot bless a dying world unless we do that very thing. So I can't help but think that when Paul wrote here, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that he did not mean that a Christian soldier should not be prepared to make an invasion of enemy territory. Now, when speaking of Christian warfare, Paul said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That sounds like offense to me. Every time that we go out and we pull down a stronghold of Satan... We are lifting the blinders off of people who are, who are blinded to the, to, by the devil's works to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're in the darkness of sin. How do we do that? How do we lift that darkness? Well, Scripture says that we do it with the gospel of peace. We restore men to peace by the preaching of the gospel. So I think that Paul is ready for us to have an invasion of enemy territory. Francis Havergal wrote in one of the hymns that we sing, Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. But let's go on because we want to make one more point about preparation. Secondly, there must be watchfulness for an attack. Now, I've dealt over and over again with the need for us to watch out for Satan. He comes from directions that you least expect. It's said that Alexander the Great was the first one to recognize the need of good footwear for soldiers. Before Alexander came along, uh, soldiers were plodding as they marched. They were, they were uh, lumbered along as they marched and they fought. But Alexander desired to have a, a swift, moving, fighting force. He wanted his army to be quick in its attacks. He wanted them to be able to outmaneuver the enemy. 
And so he couldn't do that with the customary footwear of his time. And so what Alexander the Great did, he actually designed a new sandal for his soldiers to wear. And this sandal was, was strong enough that it could withstand rigorous marching, but it was also light and flexible enough so that soldier could, could move very quickly. When the Romans came along, they copied that very same sandal that Alexander the Great made. And one of the things that they used to do in ancient warfare was that they would camouflage a sharp stick or a piece of metal right underneath the surface of the ground. Now, they didn't have gunpowder like we have today and explosives, but this was kind of like their landmine. And so what they would do, they would disguise this sharp-pointed stick or that piece of metal right there underneath the ground. And so when the soldier came along, he stepped on that sharp stick, and it went through his foot, and it hobbled him, and he couldn't get to the battlefield. Now, you see, the point here is, and no pun intended when I say point, but the point is you can disable a soldier either by taking him out of the heart, by piercing him through the spear, or it's possible that you can take him out at the feet. Either way, a soldier can't fight. You see, shoes are very important. They have to be sufficiently strong to withstand that penetrating stick. Now, here's the thing for a Christian soldier. When our feet are not shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we very quickly lose our zeal. We lose the desire for people to be saved. Now, Satan hasn't knocked us down by by tempting us to get into some gross sin. And uh, he hasn't... Uh, ruined our testimony by tempting us to get into adultery or, or, or stealing or something like that. But Satan has been just as effective because he took our zeal away. He's taken away the desire to reach people, and so Satan just wins by default. And remember what I said just a moment ago? If we're not advancing, and if we're not invading Satan's territory, then we lose ground, and we do it simply by attrition. Attrition is defined as, maybe you don't even know what the word means, but attrition is defined as a policy of decruitment by not recruiting following voluntary resignation or retirement. You see, when old soldiers retire, if you don't replace the old soldiers, then the army dies. So when old soldiers are, 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 are dying and there's no recruitment, then the army ceases to exist. And so Satan is as effective by decruitment as he is by walloping you on the head with the mallet of gross sin. Either way, he still wins. So when the Scripture says, watch out for the devil's attacks, it means watch out in every direction, in every conceivable way, because if he can't get you one way, he'll get you another. And so if he can't take you out at the heart, Satan takes you out at the feet, and he just makes you ineffective for the service of the Lord. Either way, Satan wins, and his kingdom goes on. So God says, you have to watch out for this. Now, one more statement we'll make tonight and we'll be through. The gospel of peace says that I was once the enemy of God, but now we are friends. Why should we have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Well, it's because every enemy of the cross is a potential friend of the cross. We're not out here recruiting people that are neutral in this fight. Everybody is either on one side or the other. Everybody's either fighting for the kingdom of light or he's fighting for the kingdom of darkness. There is no such thing as a Swiss spiritual kingdom. Everybody's on one side or the other. So all of the people that we get into the kingdom of light have been recruited out of the kingdom of darkness. So how do we do that? We give them the gospel. And the gospel is what removes the enmity from the sinner and puts him at peace with God. 
Warfare doesn't seem to be very pleasant. We don't like to think about warfare. But when you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to save your family and your friends, the only way to keep them out of hell, this is a fight that you don't want to miss. You want to be in this fight, and you want to translate, help to translate those people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So this is what Paul tells us to do. Put on these shoes of the gospel and pray that God will make them swift and beautiful for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. Lord, bless this message. We pray, Lord, that our people would take this to heart. Help us to understand, Lord, that our feet need to be busy. We need to be out there talking to people and and, and telling them about salvation. Help us, Lord, to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.